You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Since I saw you last, and I don't mean yesterday for some of you, I mean two and a half years ago, you and I have both probably experienced a whole new string of sufferings, unfortunately. And it's as though this suffering is woven into the tapestry of the stories of our lives. There are threads that are now there, unfortunately, that were not there before. Often we find ourselves experiencing unexplained hardship right smack dab in the middle of our lives. Do you know, when I turned 40 a couple of years ago, I kept saying with pride that I was now middle-aged. And everyone was like, oh, no, no, you're not middle-aged. And I said, no, I really am, and it's okay that I am because you are also probably at least middle-aged as well. And, And I don't know about you, but I would be thrilled to make it to 80. So 40 is a good midway point mathematically. I titled yesterday's sermon, God's Wisdom in the, at the Start of Life. And today's sermon is, you guessed it, God's Wisdom in the Midst of Life. Yes, in the middle, but in the midst of whatever God sends our way. And especially those things that God sends our way that we would never choose for ourselves. So we look today, as you can imagine, at the book of Job. If you're opening the Bible in front of you in the pew, Job, you'll be able to find. Yesterday, Proverbs was right after Psalms. Job is right before Psalms. So if you've hit the Psalms, go back a little. As you might recall, Job lives a happy, good, righteous life until one day God allows him to lose everything. In the span of one day, all of his property is taken. His ten children die suddenly in a freak accident. And then Job's own health turns south. Three of Job's friends and a fourth hanger-on come to comfort him, or so they suppose. The rest of the book then serves as a dialogue between Job and these four other individuals about the nature of suffering or most of the rest of the book. Because we're in the middle today, I'd like us to look at the middle of Job, Job chapter 23. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, Job 23. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Out of great pain, Job despairs. He wishes he had never been born. And his friends try to lift him up out of this pessimism by giving him something to do. What nice friends. They tell Job to repent of whatever evil he had been doing so that he could then, by his own effort, restore himself to God's good graces. 
And Job has some choice words for these friends. Throughout the book, he calls them worthless physicians, miserable comforters, those whose maxims are proverbs of ashes and whose wisdom is found only in their silence. These so-called friends hold to a common view in the ancient world. They believed that suffering serves always as God's judgment for sin in this life. That there is almost this one-to-one relationship. You do something bad and God is going to cause something bad to happen to you. This to that cause and effect. And we see this uh, terrible viewpoint today sometimes, like uh, 20 years ago when prominent evangelical pastors were prone to say publicly that they thought that 9-11 and the tragedy and the suffering there was God's judgment upon the immorality found in New York. They saw this relationship between sin and suffering in this life. But in the Bible, this is not what is the endorsed viewpoint. We see Jesus counter this perspective in Luke's gospel when some self-justifiers came to Jesus to ask him about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Were those who suffered worse sinners than those who did not suffer? That's what they ask. And the answer is no. And Jesus tells them all to repent. And then when Jesus' disciples point in John chapter 9 to the man who was born blind, they ask, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? They assume someone must have sinned for him to suffer so. But Jesus replies, no, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes on to heal him miraculously. So to look upon suffering and to assume that it is God's direct judgment upon an individual's sins is to see God's response to us as conditional upon our actions. If we do this, then God will do that. And there is some merit to this. But to only view this, uh, to think that the world only works this way, is uh, terribly wrong. This perspective believes that human action affects divine action, that God is almost beholden to respond to us in what he does, that he has no other reason for doing what he does. It makes the world human-centric, beginning and ending with me or you. Based on this kind of belief system, Job's friends counsel him to get on his knees in order to regain the health and wealth of his family. They want him to work the system to be the change that he wants to see in his own life. But Job does not play along. He is adamant that he has done nothing wrong. And the book even asserts that he has done no egregious sin, that this is not God's punishment upon him for a sin. But as the book progresses, Job becomes obsessed with his innocence. He says things like, though I am blameless, God would prove me perverse. And at the start here of chapter 23, he says, my complaint is bitter. And some versions translate that, my complaint is defiant. Job here demands that the Lord reveal himself and vindicate Job. Job has these charges against God. He is accusing God 
of perverting justice because he is innocent. So why is he suffering? Job's charges against God have this kind of legal ring to them. We see this in this passage that we just read. In verse 3, Job says he wants to come before God's judgment seat, to lay his case before him, to argue with God on the basis of his uprightness. Job hopes to sue God himself, to prosecute God in some kind of divine courtroom, and thereby to restore his own reputation. By putting God in the dock, so to speak, Job is essentially setting himself as God. He is making himself the judge of what's right or what's wrong, what's fair and what's not fair. At the beginning, Job is righteous in the eyes of the world, and as the progression of the book goes along, it reveals Job to be merely self-righteous. He is righteous, yes, but he is also self-righteous. And he starts spiraling downward. He starts asking not only, how could this happen, but how could this happen to me? In the midst of your own very personal suffering, does that sound at all familiar? Why is this happening to me? My favorite book written by C.S. Lewis is actually a novel, and it's a novel he didn't write till the end of his life. Till We Have Faces retells the myth of Cupid and Psyche, which is the story of a beautiful human woman who, through the jealousy of the goddess Venus, it's Greek mythology, remember, she and the rebellion of Venus's son Cupid, she ends up married to Cupid, but forbidden to ever look upon his face. And one day, this beautiful woman's older sister comes to visit her. And the story goes that the older sister, in her jealousy, convinces the younger sister to look upon Cupid's face. And when she does so, Psyche is so stunned by the beauty of her husband that she spills a drop of the hot lamp oil on him, and he wakes up. He banishes her as the story goes, and Venus then requires that Psyche perform four impossible tasks before she can be reunited with her husband. So C.S. Lewis tells this story from the perspective of the ugly older sister, who is said to be jealous, and yet she is complaining to the gods. She writes out this complaint to the gods to vindicate her own reputation, kind of like Job. This sister, Oral, is her name. She maintains that she was not actually jealous. But as she's writing, she begins to see herself as she really is. She sees herself in all of her sadness, in all of her suffering, in all of her control, and in all of her jealousy. And she realizes, oh, I am like that. She had spent most of her life hiding her ugliness behind a veil, presenting a faceless self to the world. And she realizes, these are her words at the end of the first part of the book, at the end of her complaint. The complaint was the answer. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? In other words, till we see ourselves as we really are, 
in all of our sin, in all of our pride, in all of our self-righteousness, how can we enter in to relationship with God? Suffering brings out what's on the inside. And until that pride is revealed and repented of, that real relationship with God will remain elusive. Someone once said, in times of trouble, we are like a tube of toothpaste, say, that gets squeezed. What's on the inside, under the pressure of suffering, spills out for all to see. Through hardship, Job gets squeezed and his self-righteousness spills out. In the midst of all of that mess, he starts spinning his wheels as he keeps searching for the answer to the question, why do I suffer? And then at the end of the book, beginning in chapter 38, God breaks in. In his mercy, he breaks in, but it's a very powerful breaking in. He reveals himself to Job when he speaks out of the storm, like a storm we had last night. Can you imagine? The Lord there lays bare Job's self-righteousness. He says, will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? And Job never gets a clear answer from God. He gets God himself in all his majesty, but he doesn't get a clear answer to the question, why am I suffering? Why do I suffer? And honestly, in our own lives, we don't usually either. But Job gets God in all of his majesty and his wisdom. And that seems to be enough for Job by the end of the book. So after all this summary of the book of Job, you can go home and read it yourself if you'd like. Um, where do we ourselves today take comfort from this part of the Bible? Well, first of all, here in chapter 23, in the midst of this bitterness and the downward spiral of despair that Job finds himself in, we see that Job is just there. He's right in the middle. It's the middle of the book. It's the middle of his suffering. There's no end in sight from where he sits. His story isn't over yet. He wishes it would be over. He despairs uh, of what might come next, something worse he fears. But God is not yet done with him. We know the ending to Job's story. You can read the end of the book, spoiler alert, and you find out that God restores everything to Job and then some. He receives back all of what he lost. And God has also told each one of us the end of human history, the end of our collective story, the story of the church, that one day every tear will be wiped away and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. So for you, whether you are in the midst of your very, very personal pain, or whether the next change is a change for the better or even a change for the worse, you have to remember that your story is not over yet. God is still doing something, and you can trust that. And you can trust that as your story is by faith woven in with God's story through Jesus Christ, your story will have a happy ending at the last day. Another thing to note is that in Job, God appears to take Job's side. The Lord challenges Job's self-righteousness, but he doesn't require any atonement for Job at the end, only for his three friends. As petulant and annoying to us as Job might be, Job is staying in relationship with God. He's in the middle, but he doesn't just walk away. 
He doesn't resort to evil by taking out his grief and his anger on others. Job persists in his faith, albeit imperfectly. He reminds me in the middle of Jacob wrestling the angel, refusing to let go until God blesses him. But some of you might have let go. You may have gotten so angry at God for sending something as horrible to you as that, that thing. And you might have walked away. You might continue to go to church or even to Bible study, but you never let God come home with you. You never let God speak to you. You never let God in again. There is grace, even for you, if you have walked away. I believe that God would love to break through to you in the midst of whatever pain you face and the anger that you can't let go of, just like he broke through to Job. And I find also this might feel like uh, some slim comfort at first, but we're told elsewhere in Scripture that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Oh, great. Thanks a lot, Lord. I love that. <laughs> um, struggle and suffering serve to rub off our sharp edges. One of my favorite things to do when I'm at the beach is to walk along and collect treasures. Yes, I love the shells and the stones, but whenever I find real sea glass, I, I, I pocket it immediately because there's something about the sea glass that's unnatural. It's not of God's creation solely. It's rather of human creation, human invention, and then human brokenness. When a bottle's broken, it's left out in nature without mediation, and it will cut and hurt whoever steps on it and touches it, won't it? <clears throat> but when the waves tumble it, the sea, the water, the salt, the sand, rub off those edges, making it into this beautiful work of art. It turns into something even more rare than what we find already in God's creation, those shells. So I'd like to think that maybe in our lives, God is like a collaborator, an artist of ultimate beauty, one who delights to take your sin and your heartache and then transform it into a masterpiece. God takes your sinful self as raw and as sharp as broken glass and he shapes you in that pounding and painful surf of life. So remember, in the midst of whatever you face today, or whatever you find yourself coming out of, God is in the process of transforming you into a beautiful work of art. And finally, we find in Job that there is this need for a mediator. Job exclaims at one point, would that there was an arbiter between us, between him and God, who might lay his hands on us both. He needed someone who was God and yet also human. You and I and Job need someone who is high and yet has plumbed the depths of human suffering. You need someone who knows the trouble you've seen. Job's hope in God's grace caused him to say, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, 
and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job saw but a glimmer of what God would do in and through Jesus Christ, but it brought him out of the midst of his suffering with hope and with his faith intact. And God has shown you a lot more than he showed Job. You know Jesus. God has shown you his own son, mocked and rejected, scorned, pierced, suffering, dying on the tree. If through that darkest of days, through a suffering far greater than anything Job ever experienced, God was bringing about salvation for you and for me and for all who will have it, then you can trust that God will bring about something greater than what you could ever imagine out from the midst of the pain that you experience now. So with that in mind, let us pray. Lord, today, in the middle of things we would never choose for ourselves, would you speak to us of your great love for us and of your own lordship over all that happens? Increase our trust in you. Humble us and shape us, because you are the potter and we are the clay. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.